This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Heartland Institute's Daily Podcast. I'm Sterling Burnett, Director of the Arthur B. Robinson Center on Climate and Environmental Policy and Managing Editor of Environment and Climate News. I've had many prominent scientists, researchers, and policy analysts over my nine years at the Heartland Institute on our podcast, but rarely have I had so distinguished a guest as I have today, physicist William Happer. Happer is a Cyrus Fogg Brackett Professor of Physics Emeritus at Princeton University. Aside from his numerous prizes, Happer has been awarded throughout his long and distinguished career. Uh, you know, he's a fellow of the American Physical Society. He was elected a member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences in 1995 and a member of the National Academy of Sciences in 1996. In addition, he has served in, uh, in, in two, under two presidencies, uh, director of energy research in the Department of Energy under George H.W. Bush and as a member of the National Security Council under President Donald Trump. In 2005, uh, Happer co-founded and has since served as a board member of the CO2 Coalition, in which role he has published a number of research papers. That and his forthcoming participation in the 15th International Conference on Climate Change, hosted by the Heartland Institute in November in Orlando, is what Happer's here to discuss today. Will, thanks for being with us. Well, thanks for the very kind introduction, Sterling. Well, you've you've sure accomplished a lot. I could have, you know, as long as long as it was, it could have gone on much longer. So, well, I briefly summarized some of your accomplishment over the years. But for our listeners who may not may not be familiar with you or the CO two coalition, please tell us a little bit about yourself, how you came to work on climate issues, and founded the CO two coalition, and what it is and does. Well, thanks, Sterling. I'm a physicist, as you can guess from the introduction, and I've. Uh, worked for many years in areas related to climate. I've never really uh, been a professional climate scientist, but I'm probably best known for the uh, sodium guide star laser, which is a uh, trick to uh, sense the distortions of the atmospheric air above telescopes so that you can correct for the uh, uh, damage that they do to optical seeing. So if you go to a modern telescope, you at night, you will often see this yellow laser pointing up in the sky, and that's my invention. And it actually helps quite a lot for uh, improving seeing. Uh, as Sterling mentioned, I, uh, I served under Bush uh, Sr., and I had responsibility for all non-weapons research at the Department of Energy, including work on climate and environment. And uh until then, I hadn't really paid much attention to climate. I had many other things to work on. But uh, I was surprised then at what a politicized field this was. This was 1990, 1991. And already then, it was very different from normal science in that nobody did anything without thinking about the political ramifications. Uh, you know, is my research going to be alarmist enough You know, to be uh to get a refund yeah get a, a renewal of my grant next year so it was a very strange group of people and uh so after i left i was 
fired by uh, Al Gore when uh, he and Clinton won the election. I was glad to get out of there and get back to Princeton. I had lots of interesting work to do there. But I, it was always in the back of my mind that there's something funny about uh, climate science. And it just continued to get worse, as uh, I think most people recognize. And and so, as Sterling said, at, at some point, I, I called around a few friends and I said, "Let's let's put together a little educational organization to try to get out the truth about uh, climate, uh, carbon dioxide." And so we called it the Carbon Dioxide Coalition. And um, it's got a website. You can look at CO2 coalition.com and and you can see some of our publications and so we do our best to educate people that uh, CO2 is in fact uh, beneficial to the world it's not something it's not a pollutant at all uh, that's a hard message to uh, carry because uh, most of the media you know gives you the other story that this is a terrible pollutant the world is going to end in 10 years it's it's terrible what we've done to children in particular you know with, with these uh, there's no other way to describe them they're, they're simply lies and and yet if you're a young person how are you supposed to know yeah we uh we've talked in the past on here with people about uh sort of the uh, new psychological illnesses that have been, you know, there's a whole realm of psychology, eco-psychology, where it's not the environment itself that has caused the psychological damage. It's it's the alarmist rhetoric around it that is causing, you know, the repeated drip, 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 like the Chinese water torture of, yeah, yeah. of alarmist claims that are just warping uh, some young people. Well, I, I often say that it reminds me of the uh, Salem witch trials. Uh, you know, the accusers, they were all young women, you know, they're 15 years old, 16 years old. And the judges at the trial all had Harvard degrees. You know, it, it was nonsense from beginning to end. And yet, uh, you know, it seemed very real at the time to these poor children who had been, you know, tortured with fire and brimstone sermons all their young lives. And, and so... This is the result. So before jumping into your recent research papers and what you might discuss at uh, the International Climate Conference 15, let's give our audience sort of a general view of things. You've already prefaced or, or sort of previewed some of it, but what is your view of climate change in general? Are humans causing it? Does it pose an existential threat to human existence, as so many claim? Or on balance, has it been uh, sort of good or bad for humans and civilization so far? Well, Sterling, you know perfectly well that climate has changed all the time uh, throughout the history of the world, throughout geological history. And uh, we're undergoing some very minor warming now. It started around 1800, if you judge from uh, glacial uh, retreats, which began about 1800, long before there was any big increase of CO2. There have been many similar changes that you can infer from proxy data on past temperatures, uh, from glacial moraines and stuff like that. And uh, so this is not unusual. It happens that this particular warming uh, coincides with increasing carbon dioxide, which is a greenhouse gas and, and is expected to cause some warming. Uh, that what people don't understand is that the predicted warming from CO2 is, is very small. And, and, you know, if you double CO2, it's really hard to predict more than 
one degree centigrade warming, if, if you're honest about it, and it'll probably be less than that. But nevertheless, you know, there's this uh, huge establishment that claims doubling CO2 will make the Earth warmer by three degrees is a typical number, which is three times, you know, the the sort of rational guess and, and probably uh, yeah, the real answer is somewhat less than one degree. So I, if you look at the world, though, uh, good grief, you know, we've got uh, record food production. A, a good part of that has uh, been due to carbon dioxide fertilization effects and making plants more resistant to drought. A major part has also been uh, due to the use of nitrogen fertilizer, which is being demonized now because of nitrous oxide that is uh, associated with farming, agricultural activities. So uh, the proposed solutions to these uh, alleged problems are to take us back to the dark ages, you know, I, uh, it's unbelievable. I, you know, I don't want that world for my children and my grandchildren. And so the reason we founded the CO2 coalition is to try to get enough honest science out there that people will be comfortable in resisting uh, the crazies. Yeah, it's, 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 it's a situation where not only is there not a disease, but if there were disease, the cure would be much worse than the disease yeah, that's itself, right? right? Yeah. Right. Uh, well, there's not. There's actually not a disease. Yeah. I mean, it's it, CO two is it's really good for the world. Yeah. So, among your recent papers for the CO two coalition was one you authored with Dr. Richard Lindzen, responding to claims made in the fourth national climate assessment. This is our U.S. government's official document, right? What were mm -hmm. your conclusions concerning the fourth assessment's findings and the virtues or lack thereof of this document? Well, the climate assessment uh, is, is something that is mandated by Congress. I, every few years it has to come out. Maybe it's every four. I don't remember. But um, I suppose in principle that would be useful. But what has happened, it's been hijacked by alarmists. So uh, what comes out is um, has no relationship to the truth, to the facts. Steve Coonan re recently wrote a very nice book, uh, Unsettled, and where where he he uh, goes into detail about what's in the national climate assessment, and he shows, you know, example after example of, of just complete uh, uh, exaggeration, even fabrication of uh, results. Uh, of course, all of them make things look terrible. You know, it's worse than we thought. <laughs> all of this nonsense. But uh, the next one will be equally bad because uh, this administration has uh, stacked the deck and uh, you can expect to see alarming climate assessment coming out uh, at the next scheduled time. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, there's a famous uh, sort of uh, anecdote that when Ronald Reagan got shot and he, uh, he was uh, rolled into the emergency room and he asked the doctor, he joked with the doctor, are you a Democrat or Republican? And uh, uh, the doctor replied, Mr. President, today we're all Americans. Mm -hmm. And um, it's it's sort of the same thing about this. So you, uh, you've served in two Republican administrations, right? Science should be not only, it shouldn't be bipartisan, it should be nonpartisan. 
It's not about well, politics. Well, actually, you know, I, I've, I've never been terribly political. I've always been interested in science. And, uh, mm. you know, legally, I'm still a registered Democrat, which, <laughs> I, you know, I signed up to be a Democrat when I was a, a young man in North Carolina, when the yeah. Democratic Party was the party of the people, you know, mm. of the common man. And so uh, my old party, which I really admired, you know, back in the early 60s, uh, late 50s, uh, has turned into something that uh, has no resemblance to the traditional Democratic Party, which was the party of the common man. Yeah, but what I was getting at is that regardless of your personal politics, uh, uh, science isn't supposed to be about that. It's about to be following the facts. And you mentioned Steve Coonan. So you served in two Republican administrations. Well, he served in in a Democratic administration. In fact, Obama's administration. He comes to the same conclusion you do. This isn't this isn't a matter of a a right wing or Republican conspiracy to hide facts about climate change. This is good scientists saying, if you're honest, this isn't a disaster, folks. In fact, you're being misled. Yeah, that's true. Uh, I mean, science. uh, The the reason I love science, as opposed to say. political philosophy or, you know, economics, various other more squishy things is that there really are precise answers to things in science. You know, there really is a law of gravity and it's there because that's the way the world is. And it was determined by measurement and uh, you you can't vote it out. Uh, So this idea that science is a consensus of uh, smart people, it's completely wrong. You know, consensus means absolutely nothing in science. Consensuses do form, but they're very often wrong. So uh, the truth in science exists, and you can find it out if you're honest about it and uh, work hard and do good experiments and observations. And uh, everybody comes to the same conclusion. It doesn't matter whether you're in Botswana, Africa, or in New York City, you know, or, Dim, you know, Buenos Aires. You always get the same answer if you're careful to do the experiments and the observations. Right. So, Dr. Hepper, you co-authored another white paper recently discussing what I'm going to call, quote, second stream radiative transfer. Without getting without getting too technical, if you can, these these are not your physics students at uh, Princeton yeah. for the most part. Uh, what is that, and why is understanding it important to understanding the Earth's climate in general and commonly made claims about climate change in particular? Well, thank you, Sterling. I, you know, I try to stay honest by uh, working on on basic research, and uh, this particular work has to do with clouds. And clouds are very important in climate, and they're not terribly well understood uh, in in detail. And so th- this is a uh, a paper on how you uh, account for radiation transport, heat transport in clouds, where radiation is scattering off little droplets of rain or, or little crystallites of snow, and some is going forward, some is going to the side, and uh, that's a pretty complicated problem, but it's related to other work I've done in physics. It's related, for example, very closely to neutron scattering in uh, in nuclear uh, weapons or or in reactors, civilian reactors. So a lot of the same uh, physics is involved, and uh, that has not leaked over into the climate uh, community. 
And so we're going to try and educate them on how to solve this problem, you know, accurately and efficiently. <laughs> so um, one of the consistent messages from the CO2 coalition is that carbon dioxide and climate change has benefited, has benefited humanity thus far. As you know, uh, that's not the message we hear daily. Um, why has climate change been a blessing for most people in most places? And why aren't we hearing that message? Well, uh, first of all, let, let me point out the uh, major contributions of CO2 are to plant growth, you know, agriculture, forestry, and many, many studies have shown that uh, agricultural yields have benefited very dramatically from CO2. Uh, there have been other factors. Fertilizer, for example, is extremely important, especially nitrogen fertilizer. But even forests, you know, which you don't fertilize, are growing faster now than they did 100 years ago. And CO2 is a big part of that. The other, uh, CO2 has two main effects. Uh, perhaps the most important one is that it uh, makes plants more resistant to drought. You know, we had a dry summer in Princeton, and I was... <laughs> you know, constantly watering my garden, but I had to water it less than I would have had to if there were not, you know, 400 parts per million, in, uh, <laughs> if there were only 300 parts per million. But because uh, with more CO2, plants just have fewer holes in their leaves and they, they leak less water. So if you look from satellites, for example, you can see the earth greening, but the greening is most dramatic in arid, semi-arid regions where plants are growing better now where they could just barely grow or couldn't grow at all before when there was less CO2 in the air. Uh, there are other more esoteric reasons that CO2 helps, but fundamentally it's very good. And you can tell that without any politics because greenhouse uh, operators who are growing hothouse tomatoes or flowers or stuff like that routinely pay a fair amount of money to enrich the atmosphere of the greenhouse with CO2. They don't do that because they're interested in science or because they're Democrats or Republicans. They do that because they get better tomatoes, they get better roses, whatever is growing in there, better cucumbers. And uh, so it's worth paying for the CO2, you know, to get these results. And now we're getting that not only in greenhouses, but in the open air, you know, in our fields and forests. So there's no question that CO2 is a, a major benefit to life on Earth. And it's been much higher concentrations for most of the history of life on Earth. I, I like to point out to people that by all objective measures, we're in a CO2 famine now compared to geological history. So why why is it called a pollutant? Well, beats me, you know. <laughs> people are... <laughs> People are strange that way, and um, you know why? Why were they calling all these honest people in, in Salem witches? You know they weren't witches at all, but everybody believed it, uh, especially the elite. The only ones who in Salem who were somewhat dubious were the common people who uh, were not sure about all this witch talk. 
But, uh, of course, they didn't have Harvard degrees, so who pays any attention to them? <laughs> well, yeah, they weren't – they also uh, – I noticed that, uh, uh, that most of the elite were exempted from being accused of being witches. Uh, <laughs> common people were well, not, that's, right? That, that's right. That's yeah. right. In fact, that's what brought it to an end because they were running out of common people to hang, and they began to look at each other. And yep. at that point, they realized that hey, maybe we better stop this. Yeah, well, you know, you, you know, the actual the actual uh, end of it came when uh, the governor of Massachusetts' wife was accused of being a witch, and within mm-hmm. days, he issued a declaration saying, "We got to stop all this." That's right. That's right. <laughs> well, they they had they had what they call spectral evidence, which right. is not very different from a lot of evidence for <laughs> the harm from CO two today. But you know, the way it worked is, you know, you had a dream that, you know, your neighbor was a witch, and uh, then you went and testified in court, and the result was they hanged your neighbor. Yeah. You know, and uh, if if you really look at the evidence that CO2 is a pollutant, it's the same type of evidence, you know. <laughs> you, you, you've got, you, you don't have a dream, you've got a computer model that tells you that. that that's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, uh, big picture, Will, if you can make just one point. What's the most important single point you'd like our listeners to take away from our discussion today? And if you could, tell us why they ought to join us at ICCC 15. (laughs) Well, I I would say, you know, to our listeners, please use your common sense and uh, do a little reading of your own. We we live in this wonderful world of uh, the Internet. And uh, if you go to a little trouble, you can learn a lot about climate just looking at the internet. Look at both sides. Look at the arguments of the alarmists and look at the counter-arguments. And, um, but the main thing is to try and understand it yourself because, as, as I say, uh, truth and science is not uh, consensus. It's not what everybody believes. It's what is justified by facts. So try to learn what the facts are. And the facts are that we haven't had very much warming and so it's already very, very clear that CO2 uh, has very little effect on temperature, but it has a huge effect on agriculture. So the the only thing you can really put your finger on that CO2 has done is it's improved our quality of life by improve, improving uh, farm yields and forestry yields and ranching yields. And uh, if uh, you can come to Orlando... Uh, you'll have a terrific time. You know, it's a good time of year if you're from the north like like me to get away, you know, from the cold and uh, miserable weather and, and soak up a little sunshine and meet a lot of interesting people. So I've been to one or two of these conferences and uh, I've always enjoyed them. You know, I, I hear things I agree with and things I don't agree with, but uh, it's never dull. <laughs> and you, you get... Uh presentations like ones that you might give where people can, you know, look up on the screen, listen to you speak and find out, oh, well, here's here's the sources for their data. Here's here's uh, why they're making these claims and and then they can go back and educate their neighbors, right? Their their family. Right. right. So, right. I think it's it's nice that you have these gatherings of people who debate the real science, but then also they find out that there are others out there like them. They're not uh, lone voices in the wilderness, right? That's true. Uh, the, the the main problem, though, is to reach out to as large an audience of our fellow citizens, citizens as we can, yep. you know, to explain to them that they've really been deceived by all of this, you know. And uh, it's a hard message to 
to carry because it means uh, embarrassment for many people who sincerely believe all this nonsense that they've been fed by the mass media, uh, but they really have been deceived. And uh, so sometimes it's better to just never change your stance. You know, that's my story. I'm sticking to it. <laughs> but <laughs> right. Ev- evidence be damned. Uh, don't, yeah, don't, exactly. Don't don't, uh, don't uh, confuse me with the facts here. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, well, well, we've been pleased you could be with us today. I want to thank you on behalf of myself and our listeners. Thank you, Sterling. It's been a pleasure chatting. Listeners, thanks for checking in on us today. Please check Hartland's website as we follow the work of Professor William Happer and the other fine scholars at the CO2 Coalition, and as we track the progress of energy and environmental laws and regulations that affect you. In addition, please consider attending Heartland's forthcoming 15th International Conference on Climate Change at the Hilton Lake Buena Vista in Orlando, Florida on Thursday, February 23rd through Saturday, February 25th. You can get Heartland's early bird rate by registering before December 31st. Go now before it's too late. Uh, The conference will have panels and presentations from many of the world's top climate energy experts, discussing the latest climate science and the wrong-headed energy and policy solutions the world's governments are, seem determined to impose on us all. Also, if you're not already receiving these podcasts daily on your favorite device, go to iTunes and subscribe. And when you have the time, please rate our podcast on iTunes so you can help us expand the reach of free market ideas. Thanks. Take care. Bye. <music>